we have to keep changing and we really operate as a family. And when you give them the assurance that, yes, we'll try new things, it will not have a, never, a repercussions on anyone on a personal basis. Right. We will do what's good for the organization, but we will always take care of the people. And that's the trust that sort of encouraged a lot of the people who have been set in their ways to really open up and come say, we can do this better. We used to do this this way. We haven't done it in a long time. Let's, let's reestablish it again. And, and really phenomenal. I think very today versus five, six years ago, and really I hate touching my own horn, mm. but people look forward to change. And, and it's part of our culture now. So there's always something happening. Every five, six months, seven months, something new. We look at a particular business functions and say, how can we do it better? And we reshuffle it. We, 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 we're not worried of failing. It happens, right? We'll, we'll never learn. Welcome to the World Class Leaders Show. This is the one and only podcast for ambitious and high achievers, professionals who want to become world-class leaders. In this podcast, we deconstruct the success of high-performance leaders, share their stories, and teach the most effective strategies to move from average to greatness. This is your host, Andrea Petroni, a high-performance and leadership advisor, executive coach, and keynote speaker with more than 20 years of international and executive corporate experience. Welcome everyone again to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. And today we have Aizam Kadura with us. Aizam is uh, based in Dubai and uh, is not just uh, a good friend of mine, but we, you know, we work together in, and then we'll tell you a little bit more later in his current capacity as CEO of Smartstream Technologies. Aizam, welcome to the show today. Hi, Andrea. Thank you. Perfect. Aizam, would you like to tell a little bit more about you to, to the audience? I'm currently the CEO of Smartstream Technologies, which is effectively a global organization working with uh, over 2,000 financial institutions today and, and predominantly addressing their reconciliation needs, managed services, and and fees and expense management, reference data. I'm not going to dive into the details. I'm sure your audience yeah. can check the website. Mm-hmm. I graduated off my university in, uh, in, in Canada with a, with a master's degree in finance and international business and was going out to, to face the world. I landed a position with Anderson Consulting uh, back then, uh, what's known as Accenture today. That sort of jumped me into the uh, world of consulting. I had to move from, from, from Canada to, to Saudi Arabia back then, 1994. So that was quite a tough decision to make, but it honestly worked out to be one of the best decisions I've made in my life. Right. Uh, on, on multiple fronts. First, when you're working in a consultancy world, you get to work with clients in multiple industries, multiple uh, facets of of their business, whether you're looking at business process re-engineering, uh, technology upgrade, tech strategies, and you, because it was the Middle East back then, uh, where there weren't so many consultants like like today, mm-hmm. you'd be working with government sector, you'd be addressing oil and gas concerns, healthcare, education, yes. telcos, telcos. So so you name it. I mean, because at that point in time was sort of the region was still quite evolving in terms of. Is relying on consultants. 
And I've, I've effectively started my career with 10 years of consulting with, uh, as I said, first Accenture or Ames Consulting, then jumped to Arthur Anderson, uh, Booz Allen, PwC, and my last gig was with Bearing Point up to 2004. So yeah, I understand that that gave you a lot of, uh, first of all, diversity in terms of type of clients, as you said, but also different industries. So I think it's going to it probably gave you a really interesting expose or a different type of initiatives, right? 100%, 100%. Because when you're working with, you look at m and transactions, companies buying other companies, in certain instances, you look at operations, how do you streamline a process? Uh, one of my first engagements was actually involved uh, the uh, uh, introduction of check readers in, in one of the top banks in, in Saudi. Right. And how does that flow? How do we ensure the information is correct? All the way to M&A transaction where an aluminum smelter was buying another uh, aluminum operation globally. And uh, so it, it was quite vast. I think, honestly, it was just being in the right place at the right time that gave me that, that foray into industries and experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, climbed me up from my onset uh, in 94, where I was being involved heavily in, in, in operational reviews and, and re- re-engineering, all the way up to 2004, where doing a strategy consulting. In 2004, when I, asked, I was asked by the Dubai government to join uh, in the setup of the Dubai International Financial Center, effectively take a strategy report that one of the top consulting firms has put together to work with the team on its implementation on the ground. I felt my calling. So really take it back from a pure high-level industry research and report down to establishing Dubai as, as, a, as a force in in the financial service industry. Today, I mean, I'm proud the FC is, is definitely one of the top 10 global financial hubs. Since then, uh, towards with the IFC, I was involved, well, of course, but on the strategy, helped set up a quasi sovereign wealth fund for them, which acquired many entities within the financial service services space, including smart stream technologies. You've been a CEO since when exactly, Azam? 2016. I was, I was involved with the acquisition of Smartsing to the Dubai government, 2000, end of 2007, sat on the board. So in 2016, I was asked to step in uh, on an interim basis for six months. I'm still there. <laughs> it's, 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 a quite, it's good because, you know, we always say that, you know, the average tenure of a CEO nowadays, I think it's like three or four years. So yeah. I think you already went beyond that because it's already five years. So I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I know quite well what you do and Smart Street Technology. I mean, full disclosure, I, I did some work with with I mean, it's one of his team on a strategic development for one of his functions. What do you think was, Isam, for you, the major goal and objective that really that you wanted to achieve in the first years of business for the, for the company? When you're sitting at the board and you've been on the board for some time, you get, you get to see the potential and you see the mm. untapped potential. And that's what I really wanted to bring out. I, I, I saw that the company could be operating at a much better level, addressing its client needs in a much better right. way. At a board level, you're never involved to that level operationally to affect yes. that change. Right? You can give guidance and direction, set a strategy, but, but never really down to an operational level. And that's the opportunity I think I got in, in, in 2016, right? The board trusted me enough to, 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 to give me the reins and tell me, listen, we need to change this organization, gear it up, back up, make it profitable. And 
within six month time frame turned out from uh, money losing business to uh, coming in the black again. And since then, it's just been a, a continuous hockey stick on multiple fronts. I mean, got higher revenues, higher EBITDA, better margins. People are much better paid naturally. And newer technologies, it, it worked out well. What I brought, I think, honestly, is a support from a shareholder that trusted my ability to really turn around the business. And uh, that's what I did. I was supported by a formidable team. I still, I think I have one of the best teams in the industry today uh, that knew their business. A lot of my uh, execs have been in the industry for well over 20 years. Uh, last year, we celebrated uh, one of my colleagues had been in the uh, with us for 40 years so wow you think you don't get that this uh, these days right somebody who's who's effectively graduated went into the company and goes to the return all the way to retirement so we, we got something uh, we got the secret sauce i guess yeah and people probably you know I, I suspect they're very happy to work you know in the organization and you know keep doing the, the work and i love what you said is sitting on the board and then having the opportunity really to make it drastic or an important change for the organization. And I'm coming back to, to this later one, because the topic of today is really the, the turnaround. Um, but also you mentioned a couple of things that are quite interesting. You said you had the trust, right, from the shareholders, but, and you also mentioned the team, you know, having a, the quality of a team, you know, make a huge difference. Do you think these are the, the, the major factor or there is more that actually can make a turnaround more successful? I think these are the two key ingredients, but another one would be the culture, right? But Mm -hmm. what I found out is that organizations' culture can change. If you convince enough people of your vision and your ability to deliver, the mindsets change. As hard as it was said before, people are open to change when they know that you have their best interest. My people's ambassador to the to the shareholder and the shareholders ambassador to the people. And it's a very fine, fine line usually. When I started out my career within the company as a CEO, it effectively just went around our different offices, listening to what people had to say, what went right, what went wrong, and how can we make things better? And really opening it up, right? It's a difference. You have an organization that has some very strict silos. And you come in with a fresh perspective, right? I'm willing to turn a new page here. Let's eliminate the silos, irrespective of who they protected, really work from bottom up, lining up my juniors, mid-management, hearing what they have to say, and getting their voice up to the to the senior exec team and effecting the change. And it worked down as well, right? Exec team had firm understanding of what needed to happen. How can we change? How can we make it better? How can we bring the company back to its, to doing better, uh, what it used to be best at in the market. Updating technology, we had the funding, we had a perfect, oper- it was a perfect storm, right? We had the yes, people, yes. we had the funding, we had the technology, and it's just bringing that recipe together and ensuring it, it works. And that's, that's really what I did. Listen to the people, collected the good ideas, created the forum for people really to continuously voice what they believed worked. Right. Yes. And then creating a forum of where, where these ideas get validated, prioritized and uh, seen and nurtured to their success. And, uh, and obviously, like with anything, some ideas are not necessarily as, as strong as others. Right. How do you prioritize and make sure that they deliver on prerogatives as, as an organization? Uh, it's, it's gone well. And that that sort of cultural change, I think, is what saw us well over the last five to six years. I've always followed up 
uh, an open door policy and, and people know that. And whether somebody calls me up at two in the morning, I'll sit and listen. When the CEO is accessible, people believe that anyone in the organization has to be accessible. I was just on a call with one of my colleagues earlier and said, listen, it's, it's not uncommon for somebody to set up a meeting on Sundays or on a Fridays. I, I am based in Dubai. I usually used to enjoy my Sundays as a sort of quieter days where I get to catch up on a lot of the things that are on the back burner. But now it's not uncommon from, from my colleagues in whether in Austria or the UK or in the US, let's have a chat on a Sunday. It's when you love the things you're doing. I, I do believe most of my exec team and most of the team members have that passion today on let's build it together. Let's, let's keep on growing. I mean, we, we, we're doing phenomenal as an organization. Everybody has vested interest in its success. Yeah, I love that. Vested interest in the success of the business. So they are, they are really feel engaged. And I think that's super important. Um, and by the way, um, I have a few questions on this, Aizan. But would you like to say maybe to the audience how large is the organization right now? We are a thousand, roughly 1,200 employees. Okay. Uh, we were around 600 in 2016. So effectively doubled over the last uh, five years. Revenues have grown tremendously. Even the profitability has been growing mm-hmm. tremendously on, on, on multiple levels, right? Newer technology, newer people. I've set up one of my, my babies in the organization is, is our innovation lab where we bring together sets of data scientists and mathematicians to really look at industry issues and figure out new ways to solve them. It's really fun. You know, back to your point about culture, I mean, I had the chance to spend some time in your organization and I can confirm that culture is in place. So people, they want to change, they're ready to change, they're ready to make a difference in the world. It's not easy though, because you, you mentioned a little bit earlier. So most of the people in the organization have been there for many years. So they, are, they have a very long tenure in, uh, in the organization. Do you think it was so easy as you explain it to drive that change uh, uh, when people maybe say, but you know, well, we did these things uh, in the same way for years, right? So having a very compelling vision and engage people, open up to the conversation, really helped to drive the change. But do you ever, or did you ever feel resistance? Because in my experience, normally resistance is there. Yeah, definitely. Undoubtedly, there was. I mean, human nature, right, by, by itself is, is, is resistant to change. Yes. I remember back uh, maybe three or four years ago, I was, I, I ha- we have this global forum where we bring uh, key decision makers in the organization together once a year, kiss free corona. Right. And, uh, the topic was the survival of the fittest, right? And uh, effectively, we told them that the Dar- Darwin's uh, saying was not survival of the fittest, it's survival of those most adaptable to change. And yes. if, if we stay where we are, then we, we will never grow, we'll never succeed. In the long term. And that foremost challenge is that our client industry is facing today, right? Financial services industry has, has been pretty much, I would say, static in the last mm. couple of decades. Now, as a result of Corona, people working from home, new technologies, new incumbent institutions, new banks coming in, other organizations stepping into that industry, whether like Apple Pay, Google Pay, we pay, the industry had to change, right? And and for us. We had to keep changing and we really operate as a family. And when you give them the assurance that, yes, we'll try new things, it will not have a, a repercussions on anyone on a personal basis. Right. 
We will do what's good for the organization, but we will always take care of the people. And that's the trust that sort of encouraged a lot of the people who have been set in their ways to really open up and come say, we can do this better. We used to do this this way. We haven't done it in a long time. Let's, let's re-establish it again. And, and really phenomenal. I think very today versus five, six years ago, and really I hate touching my own horn, mm. but people look forward to change. And, and it's part of our culture now. So there's always something happen. Every five, six months, seven months, something new. We look at a particular business functions and say, how can we do it better? And we reshuffle it. We, 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 we're not worried of failing. It happens, right? We'll, we'll never learn. And also, you, you work in, in a space that where technology is super relevant and dominant, right? Because you're working in a fintech space. So what I know is, though, uh, you actually work with uh, clients that are not necessarily so open to change, right? Because, you know, we always this idea of banks, for example, although you're not working only with banks, but let's say banks in general, very traditional way to do business. I understand now they need to adapt too, but did you find more challenging actually to drive the change than for the client? To a certain extent, yes. Uh, but we, we bring quite a heritage in the industry. So, so and we're very close to our clients. So they, they tend to trust our decisions. I definitely don't want my client to launch into new technologies that four, five, six months down the line, uh, it fails. And so we do that. We, we, we have the ability inherently to, to see what's working in Singapore, what works in Asia, as well as what's working in New York, London, and all the financial hubs. And we tend to sort of understand what's really working in the underlying industry. That's, that's what we bring to the clients. We, we, we bring something that's effectively tested and practiced. We don't do too, too much of green technologies, right? Just the nature of the financial services industry, they're, they're not necessarily risk strong risk takers and they shouldn't be right that's where my money lives yeah, exactly <laughs> that's what i was thinking <laughs> yeah. we help them formulate their technology decisions yeah so in other words what you're saying is they are potentially open for new changes like new technologies but as long as they're proven they're tested and then they come from a trusted sources that's how i say it right yes and that doesn't say that we still have clients that are running on mainframe uh, mm environments right and surprisingly tier ones it's simply it's not easy to turn a battleship right everything has to be done in a measured way uh, risks have to be taken into perspective make sure the right steps are taken at the right time let's take a little bit broader i think it's a problem across industries is how embracing technology in their world because we all know how relevant, important, and impactful could be technology for running their own business, their processes. But still, you know, I see a lot in oil and gas, for example, one of my the industry I know, I know better, for example, I've been talking about digital transformation and changes there for years, but it's still quite painful, actually, to drive that level of change into very traditional conservative industry. So, is it, do you think there is a reason also because people, they are working in this organization, they are maybe, you know, not, not the typical tech savvy people or maybe younger guys. So there is an element of age demographics that comes to play, for example, or you don't think that is one of the reasons? I think partially so, yes. Generally, organization, you have two types of people, right? You have the visionaries, the ones that are working on the longer term, five to 10 year horizon, and they want to affect that change. Mm-hmm but that comes at a cost at a delayed return on investment. 
and you have the more, more stable to spend money today on a technology that's going to prove itself five years from now. Right. But yes. it can be done in the next six, uh, eight, 10, 12 month horizon or two year horizon, right? These strongly conflict within any organization, right? Yes. And it's it's a fine balance. Where do you spend your, your development and uh, dollars? Uh, do you want to go too far out once a shareholder is pushing you to do a shorter term return on investment? And, and, and really, it's an art more than a science, right? A lot of multiple sectors over the last two to three years have been focused on innovation. And I know from the fintech industry, a lot of them set up AI labs and blockchain uh, teams or what have you, millions of dollars have went into that with very little to show, right? It's, it's striking that balance. How, how do you keep an eye on the what's coming next, what we need to do, when should we do it, versus how do we to keep our shareholders happy that we're not spend, uh, throwing money down the drain, right? Totally, totally right. Okay, I'd like to shift a little bit more of conversation into the people side. What you said, keeping open doors, be accessible. Now, how that work in a hybrid organization? Honestly, I think I'm more accessible than, than Anita. There before. you go. Because when I used to, I mean, people knew my agenda, knew that I'll be in India, say, in August. And people, instead of just calling me up, say, all right, we'll wait a month or two till we meet with Hatham and we'll have that discussion. Now it's just click on a Teams call and I, I, I'm there. I think it's one of the positive sides of, of mm. Corona, unfortunately, was we have greater accessibility. People that spend much less time on transport and a lot of time on actually doing business. I can see it in terms of the efficiencies within my teams that I, I say 20 to 30% uplift on in delivery capability. Wow. Of course, on the downside, it impacted our ability to deliver our clients that required our physical client presence, yes. right? But uh, I'm hoping we're, we're emerging out of that now. But overall, in terms of it, it allows us to increasingly experiment, experiment with the work from home model. No, got to know the areas where it really works, where it doesn't necessarily work, where you need people in desk. Because as many as reports that came out at the beginning saying, saying that working from home delivers efficiencies, mm-hmm. it's all, you always have to take it to the grain of salt because there's tremendous value in people interacting physically together. That that finding somebody in, in the kitchen when you're preparing a cup of coffee or at the at the water cooler, as our friends in the US tend to say, has tremendous value, right? That to me is is a core component of smart stream building that family culture. I remember talking to one one fellow CEO and he was telling me people wanted to work from home, so we proposed having teams from China instead of, of India because simply it was cheap. So we can never reach that level, right? Nobody wants to have the people as commodity, right? If you don't see them, you don't build a tie, they're not there, they're not part of the fabric of the organization. They become easily dispensable. And that's what, not what we are built on. That's not what our culture is. Value, I mean, it's always been people are, are our best asset. Everything else can come and go. It's the people that that it's makes us who we are. That's why when we opened up in different offices, I mean, Dubai, we opened up quite early, uh, mid of last, last year. The relief you could see on people's faces coming in. Of course, uh, some people were apprehensive. There's Corona. We come in every day. We don't. And then eventually that sort of started back to, to our normal operation. Now, pretty much my Dubai operation is everybody's in 
pretty much uh, full-time UK, US, and other places around 40%. My India operation, we're just starting after Diwali. I think the psychological impact on people being able to disassociate from their homes, coming to a proper work environment, mixing with colleagues, and really leaving things and going home and spending time with family and friends is, is tremendous. Having it meshed up when a, with a 100% work from home uh, mindset, didn't, I don't believe really works for everyone. Yeah. There is still a need of meeting people personally, face-to-face. Do you, there is a one single lesson that you would like to share maybe in terms of how to make team more effectively working remotely? Honestly, it, it, it's, hard, it's hard to point it down, but I, I, I think one cascading work and make sure that teams, it's unrealistic for me to expect somebody from Singapore logging in at the same time from somebody in, in yeah. New York. And we try to work around it as much as possible and make sure that if there's a message that has to be heard and that individual is either on leave or is unable to join because it's late at night, that there's somebody within their team is able to join that call. It, is, it doesn't have to be uh, an executive. It could be anyone who can carry on the message and say, listen, we're, we're having this issue or we think we can do this better this way. Keep it as flat as possible and accommodative as much as you can to people's nice. time frames. Right? From my perspective, I, I try to avoid pinging people when it's late at night or at an offsite. Mm. I, I'm, I'm totally okay with receiving it. I am super hesitant to reach out to people when I believe it's family, their family. Uh, so respecting their time. You have to respect their time. You have to be available at the same time. So it, it, it somehow works magically. And keeping the flexibility, listen, if, if somebody is unable to, to come to the office because uh, their kids are at home, we can all ma- we've all managed to work from home, we can always accommodate. And for me, that's powerful because that really is a way to spark uh, engagement. Because when you give people autonomy, freedom, and say, you know what, well, I'm going to respect your time, your family issues, your personal things, people, they get more engaged anyway because they feel they are appreciated. And so what you're doing in that perspective to me is fantastic. And you're right. It's a magic formula that is just working. Aizam, that was great. I would like to ask you the last five questions. They are very quick. What is the number one lesson that you really learned across all, all of your years in, in your career? Listening. Uh, no, knowing that nobody knows everything. Just sit there, listen. Formal judgment, but but listen and listen carefully. Lovely. And said by the CEO guys here in the audience, take it because that is important. On the other hand, what is maybe one thing that you would have done maybe differently in your career? In my early ca- days in my career, I made a lot of decisions that were financially based. Okay. Running after the money. Don't give up on your passion because you want to, to, to make more money. If you find yourself in a good place and you're affecting change and it it gives you that that buzz and vibe, stick to it because it's extremely rare to, to really come by again. Wow, that's great. Don't follow the money necessarily, but follow the passion first. The money is going to come, right? Next, performance. What you, if you remember your best performance ever as a CEO, maybe before, what you, what you remember was in place at the time to allow you to get that level of performance? I had to buy it from my shareholder. I had to buy it from my team, the expectation from everyone when I was stepping in as a new CEO, they were expecting change. So that expectation, you had to prove yourself. It worked, right? Because you had the right stakeholder on your side willing to experiment right. and make it happen, right? 
So having essentially the right people, you know, on your back, able to sustain you, to promote you, to reinforce what you were doing, to give you full trust and autonomy, I suppose. Yes. So, so the environment was there. The expectation was there. Me, the timing was there. And I got all my stakeholders, team, staff. Engaged. Stakeholders yeah. were engaged, yeah. Yeah, I love your point about expectation because it's, it's, to me, it's, it's underrated. Uh, setting expectation from the get-go from people involved, also essentially all the stakeholders and shareholders. And sometimes I feel, unfortunately, relationships that go south just because the expectation they were not clear since the, since the beginning. And that happens across levels, across the industry, unfortunately. So I love yeah. that. Yeah. You know, they have, they have that misconception of the CEO's first 100-day agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it should be the first 100 day, the second 100 day, the 300. It's it's what am I going to do in the next 100 days that are going to deliver results, impact, and ensure that everybody's buying in as if I'm just stepping into this business, right? Keep the excitement and the dynamic going and be, so that it's, it's, it's a never-ending stream of energy, right? It, wow. It's self-propagating. Yeah, and that's also self-motivation for you, right? As a CEO, yeah. having constantly new challenges and how I can make an impact, right? Yes. Yes, love it. Now, who is your uh, uh, ideal leader in the, in the market? Maybe you are taking some lessons from, from him or from her. I'm, I'm going to be a bit biased. Okay. I, I've really learned a lot from His Highness Sheikh Mohammed. They never, I mean, if you look at the Dubai story, they've never shied away from trying something, right? Yes. Yes. You might fail, learn from the failure, build on it and, and evolve. We're we, we a very dynamic environment and a lot, I mean, Dubai has a lot, has a lot going for it that can exemplify how, how having that vision and, and chasing your vision delivers results, making sure you have the right people around you to advise you and guide you. Totally. Uh, I think from a business perspective, uh, somebody I really look up to in terms of mentorship. And I agree. I mean, I've been following him and I've been in Dubai so many times. And you, when you are in the place, you feel that vision around you anyway. So I think that his ability to convey that vision to everyone, your favorite business book, maybe the one that's helped you across your your career or or made a really big impact. Uh, I I have quite a few, but, but the one that I would say is an easy read and that I tend to read uh, every now and then, especially on, on flights, right? Is uh, Who Moved My Cheese? Uh-huh. It, it always gives you the perspective on, am I in the right place doing the right thing? Or is it, am I just too comfortable where I am? That book goes in from somebody who just started on their journey to somebody who's been in the industry for 30, 40 years and really needs, we, we need that. That gives you that five, 10 minutes of sitting back and reassessing as you each read each chapter, how are you performing against what, what you've done before or what you really want to achieve. Yeah. Simple, nothing fancy, but it delivers much, much, much more profoundly. Yes, amazing. It's a classic, but also, as you say, it's a timeless book. It's just a timeless book. It's perfect for any occasion. Where people should go to understand more about what you do, who you are, and what you do as Mastream? Oh, definitely my LinkedIn profile, I think, or uh, our website, smartstream-stp.com. Perfect. And we'll put this into the show notes as well for, for the audience so they can find it as well. Uh, and 
and, and the summary of the episode. Again, Aizam, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Andrea. It's a real pleasure. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening to another episode of the World Class Leader Show. Uh, Aizam is a great guy. I think he has shared with us a couple of big points that I'm taking, I'm taking away, actually, from the conversation. Number one is even if you're a CEO, you have to be accessible. Um, you know, his, his idea of having an open-door policy is exactly what I normally recommend to any actually executive or CEOs. You know, you have to be open to listen and hear what your people say, involve them, ask them comments, ideas, feedback. That's exactly what it's supposed to be. So yes, that's I think is is great. And second, he has built a culture where people they can take risk. They do innovation, they are not afraid of failing, uh, and that's exactly what we need right now. We need uh, to have company culture that actually allow people to experiment, try new things, and no matter whether you can potentially fail during the process, that's, that's, that's how it works, and having an entrepreneurial mindset in an organization. Love that. Uh, remember to send me an email at andrea at andreapetroni.com for any comment about the show or about this episode. And also, if you have any recommendation for new guests, uh, I have already a lineup of fantastic speakers for probably the next couple of months, but I'm always very intrigued to bring on the show people that can really change our mind, make us better and improve our performance. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter that goes out every Thursday. And the reason why I'm saying this because we essentially collect all the major insights and takeaways from each show. So join the community. Um, and the easy way to do is go to www.andreapetrone.com slash insight. So there is uh, an option to subscribe so you can get all the insights, all the fresh insights every week in your inbox. Thank you so much, guys, for listening to another episode of the show. I hope you find it insightful. So stay tuned and see you at the next episode.